episode 174, Real World Data versus Real World Evidence. Today, I speak with Julie Locklear from Genesis Research. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Real world data. It's kind of a tongue twister. (laughs) But RWD is not a synonym for RWE. Real world evidence. Julie Locklear from Genesis Research explains why and what both mean. The importance of RWD and RWE is ballooning these days across all facets of our healthcare industry. Julie was actually on the podcast once before, episode 144. At that time, which was last July, we talked about value-based agreements and innovative contracting. So in some ways, that episode might be the prequel to this one. After all, value-based contracts cannot exist without real-world data or real-world evidence. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome back to Relentless Health Value, Julie. Thanks, Stacey. So great to be back on Relentless Health podcast series again. Last time we talked about innovative contracting, and if anyone has not listened to that episode, I highly recommend it. Uh, Today, we are going to talk about I suppose, an ingredient of innovative contracting, but can also be used for other very important things, which is real-world data and real-world evidence. Are they synonyms, real-world data versus real-world evidence? Definitely not. And, you know, I really enjoyed that podcast on outcomes-based agreements. It was a lot of fun and highly recommend people listen to that as well. I think, you know, today we're hearing so many different words around real-world data and real-world evidence. I mean, some of them include big data, patient-centric data, among others. They're definitely not the same. Let's, you know, specifically talk here about real-world data as it relates to healthcare. So I'll just, you know, I'm going to reference a 2017 article here published in Value and Health. But essentially, when we talk about real world data or RWD, we're talking about data collected in a non-randomized controlled trial setting. Information on healthcare that's, again, derived from multiple sources outside typical clinical research settings. And this can include electronic health records, claims and billing data, product and disease registries. And also really importantly now and becoming so much more important is personal devices, electronic devices. So before we get into real world evidence and kind of the contrast there, because you said they're definitely not synonyms, let me just ask you this. Is the reason for the real world data lag in healthcare, do you think, due mainly to the lack of economic incentives? Meaning that if someone prevents me from getting condition X especially in a fee-for-service environment, there's kind of no business model for that. There's so much discussion in the public domain now about pricing and about value-based pricing. We really need to understand the value for money. And that's not always determined from the controlled clinical trials. So I think combination of factors has really brought the healthcare industry to embrace the use of real world data and real world evidence, which we'll get into as well, and to ensure that these data complement the clinical trial data. As we know, in clinical trials, these are patients 
that enter the trial with multiple inclusion and exclusion criteria. And that might not be the patient in the real world. There could be patients that are obese or outside of the age range that are included in the clinical trial. So real world data and real world evidence can really help us understand how treatments and medicines are behaving in the real world. Yeah. And I can also think that it's a bit of a power shift. Back in the old days, if we're focused specifically on pharma here, it was the pharmaceutical company that had all the data. But now it would be a provider organization and maybe a payer. And we can definitely get into this too. I'm looking forward to it. But it's not necessarily the pharma company that's going to have the real world data. So the situation is probably fast coming to bear that other people besides the purveyor of the, you know, the manufacturer of the medicine has potentially different, arguably better information about a product than maybe the one that's making it. That's correct. The healthcare organizations, and we could throw in employers in there as well, they own data on their populations. The healthcare company is going to want to manage their patient population and achieve better outcomes. So it's also competitive advantage for health insurance companies to better know their own patient populations through the use of this data so they can be competitive and be the sort of healthcare provider of choice. You're correct. Cut to real world evidence. How is that different than real world data? Real-world evidence is essentially generated from real-world data. So analyzing real-world patient experiences or real-world data, again, if we go back to sort of consensus-driven definitions, there's still some, I think, questions about the overall consensus and how to evaluate real-world data and then turn it into real-world evidence. And so today, you know, we look to various organizations that have developed good practice for the methodology of evaluating real-world data to obtain real-world evidence. And it's great that over the last several years, we've had multiple organizations that have invested efforts into real-world data, the collection, sort of cleaning it. Because one thing that I think people may not understand is that once you have real-world data, there's a long process in cleaning the data to make sure that if there's free text in there, that that's cleaned. If there's maybe errors and inputs, that that has to be cleaned and normalized before you can even think about analyzing it. And we've had funding through the FDA Sentinel Project. We have PCORI, which is the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute, We have a number of other organizations that have invested in this to ensure that it is utilized properly and appropriately. And then most recently, the 21st Century Cures Act, which was which was recently passed, provides additional focus on this collection and how we can actually utilize it with payers to improve patient access to medications. And how do these organizations that you just mentioned fit into the supply chain or the value chain? So like who hires them? Um, That's a good question. Well, the Sentinel Project, I think, you know, that's a government sponsored program. And then you have nonprofit organizations that rely on obtaining grants from various organizations, which could potentially include the pharmaceutical and biotech industries. So from a variety of sources, they're going to rely on on funding to have, you know, sort of a consensus driven approach. And are they actually analyzing 
data or are they figuring out what the best practice is to transform data into an insight or into evidence? I think both. They are, you know, they're definitely looking at both. And then we also have ISPOR, which is the International Society of Pharmacoeconomics and Outcomes Research, and they've developed a good practice checklist in the evaluation and synthesis into real world evidence. And that is a good checklist to look at. But certainly to create that checklist, they are relying on, you know, previous experience and working with different types of data sets to come up with, you know, good practice in generating real world evidence. Let's take this from different stakeholder perspectives. Let's starting with, a, say, a provider organization that might have some value-based, risk-based action going on. Say that, you know, I'm being paid by an episode of care. So it's very important to me that I'm using inpatient the best products. How do I leverage what the work of these government and nonprofit organizations are doing? Like, how would that fit into my workflow? I think if we're talking about a provider organization, they're going to want to ensure that they're looking at their data appropriately. In order to do that, generally you start by looking at what others have done. These sort of guidelines and checklists on how to look at real world data and real world evidence, generating real world evidence, can help with that. If a provider organization is being paid by episodes of care or say, a disease condition is capped annually per patient, they're going to really need to know their baseline characteristics of these patient populations before they can even think about whether they're going to make improvements. And so right off the bat, they got to start out with looking at what is my, for example, diabetes patient population look like today? What are areas that I can see already from the data that could benefit from some changes in the way we treat these patients, whether it's a compliance program or perhaps a a healthy lifestyle program, you know, whatever it is that they select, they're going to need to know their baseline so they can actually measure whether or not any programs they put in place have had an impact. And from the pharma side, same question. Pharma and biotech companies will utilize real world data and then generate real world evidence for different purposes and challenges or questions that they have internally. If you need rapid internal insights to make decisions on, let's say, business development opportunity where you're looking at another organization's molecule and whether or not you want to license that model or whether or not you want to, say, purchase another company, you're going to need to understand real world data that will help you in in making decisions on whether or not that's a good investment for your company. So for example, what are the competitors to that product? How are they performing in the real world? Is that patient population for a particular molecule? Does it even have an unmet need in the marketplace that will bring a return on your investment into transforming the molecule into a medicine that is then FDA approved for the treatment of a particular disease area. Other parts of the organization within pharma will need to generate real-world evidence for the purposes of sharing with health technology assessment organizations, especially if we're talking about outside of the U.S. Well, to supplement the regulatory dossier, pharma and biotech companies are going to need to produce some real-world evidence to demonstrate what is the unmet need Uh, What is the appropriate comparator for that geographic area? And 
in some cases, what is the cost effectiveness? And for some of these sort of points that they have to demonstrate in their dossier, they're going to need to generate real world evidence that is sufficient for a peer reviewed publication. And in order to be sufficient for a peer reviewed publication, you're going to need to utilize best practices that are out there. So you're going to need to be able to refer to for example, an ISPOR checklist on evaluating real-world data and generating real-world evidence. So that's very important. In addition, within industry, you know, in order to generate scientific leadership and sort of provider and key opinion leader support of a product, again, you'll need to have your information published in highly regarded peer-reviewed journals. And so these types of checklists and these types of consensus-driven methodologies are critical in order to be accepted within the sort of stakeholder that you want to generate not only interest, but also you have to have that believability. And the only way you can do that is to really be transparent in the way that you look at real-world data how you sort of clean it into a data set that can be utilized for research purposes and then can be published in a peer-reviewed journal. Do you believe that at this time, so not in the future, but right now, that pharma manufacturers are being affected by, we were just talking about KOLs, key opinion leaders, or other you know, provider organizations determining their formularies in the United States, do you feel that pharma manufacturer walks in to pick a stakeholder and says, will you use my drug or will you put me on formulary? And that provider organization is saying either I need real world evidence or real world data like right now, or I've already done my own research on this and I don't believe what you're saying because RCT is just not indicative of what happens in reality. Any of those could potentially happen. And having worked directly with payers myself, I have a lot of experience in hearing what their questions are. I can give you an example. We, as representatives, sort of a health outcomes research liaison, so not a sales representative, but a research liaison that goes out and speaks directly to formulary decision makers within a payer we will present all of the data that we have available on a product, which would include the clinical trial data and any real world evidence that we could supplement the clinical trial data with. And we may select, let's say we're going into a large commercial payer such as Aetna or United Healthcare. We may go into that payer with real world data that we have obtained through, let's say, a very large nationally representative population of commercially insured patients where we've looked at the burden of illness, the cost impact to that organization, as well as the potential cost offsets and comparators that they may be utilizing today. And one of the most common questions that I would get back is, well, this is great, but it's not my patient population. And while we could say as an industry or biotech, we could say this is nationally representative, oftentimes they will want to see that same trend or that same outcome within their own data. And there are ways to do that. There are ways to collaborate with the payer to do that. But that's most often the question is they'll want to see it in their own data. And of course, any of the scenarios that you mentioned could happen as well. They could have already done some research, but most likely it's let's see it in my own patient population. You were talking earlier about the UK, where in order to get a drug approved, you actually need real world data to supplement the application. Is that a trend that's going to come to the United States, do you believe? 
I think it has been over the last 10 or more years. It just might be happening a little bit slower, but I think it definitely is happening. And I think what we can look to to confirm this is the value-based agreements, kind of going back to our previous podcast, is you see the government talking about this. In fact, just the other day, I think there was a comment came out of CMS that they want to try to remove some of the barriers for government-sponsored programs to getting into more value-based care. And so I think it's already been demanded, and along with the pricing concerns that not only the government, but patients and caregivers and society in general have raised. So I think we're seeing that. Another example of how we're seeing this in the United States is organizations like ICER, who are evaluating medicines, and we're seeing other organizations, healthcare organizations, adopt the guidelines or, you know, the consensus that comes out of an ICER review in their formulary decision making. And over, I believe it was last summer, we saw that the VA entered into a partnership with ICER. You know, I think we'll see more to follow on this, but something to watch, you know, how will the VA adopt the recommendations coming out of ICER into their formulary decision making? And then further, will that have a halo effect on other healthcare organizations? As a counterpoint to that, obviously, we're in this messy middle. One of the things I was out to lunch with someone on Monday, and he said he was working with a very large PBM who apparently decided that they were going to do some value-based contracting. They were going to do some innovative outcomes-based contracts. So they did a few. And the consensus was by this PBM that it was just really difficult, that there was just too much administration. There was too much work cleaning up the dirty data. It was just far too much of a hassle. So they were going to stop and go back to their rebate model just because I think the quote was they could do 100 regular contracts for the same amount of labor power that they could do six innovative contracts. What do you have to say about that? I have some thoughts. Sure. That's a, it sounds like an interesting lunch, actually. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, you know, PBMs or pharmacy benefit management companies have different types of data than a payer or a healthcare organization. So a PBM would have access, and I'm speaking general terms here, a PBM would likely have access to only pharmacy data. So it would be very, very difficult for them to do an outcomes-based contract where you really need medical data if that's medical data, which would likely have your outcome outside of adherence and compliance, which would have your outcome of, say, a hospitalization or additional outpatient visits or other events that would be included in the medical data. So that's the first point. The second point is, sure, there are a lot of challenges if you're within a pair that has both medical and pharmacy records. And it's difficult to sort of jump into this space of outcomes-based contracting. And you're right. You need people inside that understand the data, who can implement something like this that will take time. I think if we can continue to move more towards a common data model or a common data sort of platform, and there are some platforms out there that can assist payer organizations or PBMs in sort of auditing and monitoring these outcomes-based value agreements, then I think we'll start to see a lot more. And again, you know, many of these aren't really released and to the public, and some of them are mainly looked at as pilots because of what you just said, is that it's a difficult space to get into, but I think we can look at 
there's lots of examples to share and even ones where the government is is getting involved. And so I don't think they're going to go away. And I think that in order to be a successful organization, a payer organization or a PBM, they're going to really need to learn how to perfect this because that's the trend we're seeing. Yeah, the point that I made was maybe I just have a very economic outlook. That's the lens that I look at everything through. There's no real advantage for a PBM to do this. In other words, their standard rebate contract is, let's just say, proven model. (laughs) That's true. I mean, it could be. It could very well be. And I've certainly heard that in my days and talking with payers. But again, if you look at it from a payer organization with both, well, I guess either. You could look at a PBM or a healthcare organization. If they're able to manage their patient population, achieve better outcomes at a lower cost, then they're going to be more competitive and there's a financial return for them. So if they can perfect it, then there certainly is an advantage for them to get into the space. And another thing that often comes up is the difficulty of, so we've been talking about formulary access, which kind of happens on the back end. In other words, you have all the time in the world to evaluate, I guess that's a bit of an exaggeration, given how busy we all are, but let's just say you have adequate time to evaluate real world data and real world evidence and make a formulary decision. And then you can put those papers aside and call it yourself done for the rest of the year. It's a little bit of a different story at a provider level. So one of the things that has been cited often, I think, as a gap, a current gap, is how does a physician, a prescriber, any kind of care provider, at the point of care, now they're faced with making a decision for a particular patient. And let's just say there's a lot of real-world evidence that supports one course of therapy as opposed to another. How does that information get surfaced at the right moment so that the decision maker, you know, the care provider at that exact time understands what the evidence would suggest? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's two points to make here. One is, is that the organization that the provider is working with hopefully has a decent computer system where the recommendations come directly to them. And within that computer system, they could dig a little bit deeper if they wanted to, to look at additional information now, related to the real world effectiveness. The second point I would make is, you know, having most recently been in industry in, you know, the pharmaceutical and biotech space, that industry is very constrained on what they can say to providers. So the exchange of healthcare economic data, which would include comparative effectiveness and budget impact and cost effectiveness, that is limited to formulary decision makers, quote unquote. And so unless that provider is also a formulary decision maker, the industry cannot communicate that information directly to that provider. So you get into order, into a space of sort of um, free speech and communication. And this would probably be a whole nother podcast that could go in so many different directions. But how can providers obtain real world data more easily and better uh, rather than sort of just seeing the recommendation coming from their formulary committee or reading the package insert, which most likely includes the clinical trial data. And in some cases, there might be a real world cohort within that clinical trial, but that's rare and and usually for ultra rare diseases. So I think that's a topic that really needs to be discussed on what is the most appropriate, what is the most, you know, compliant way to 
provide physicians with information to make better decisions to improve the outcomes of their patients. And I don't think we have the answer to that yet. Yeah, I would agree. And there's just been the classic example of why did it take 22 years for beta blockers to be the standard of care after a a heart attack? And Mm. a lot of it boiled down to, I'm not judging when I say this, just because if you're a physician, especially a GP at this juncture, you could probably spend your entire life 24-7 just reading journals, Uh, you know, the amount of information that's being generated um, is completely overwhelming and impossible to keep up with. But, you know, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So if you've done something Mm. for years and it seems to work well in your experience or you don't even realize that there's another way, then you might not even choose to look look it up because why would you look up something that you're pretty certain you already know the answer to? Yeah, I think that's true in all in everything in life is you don't know what you don't know. And like you said, unless a provider has unlimited time on his or her hands, which we know is absolutely not true and that they're spending less and less time with patients, they might not read the very good peer-reviewed journal that has, let's say, a real-world effectiveness study looking at how products compare to each other in the real world where you have patients with multiple diseases, different histories, different medications that they've taken in the past. They wouldn't know of that. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a huge challenge right now. Yeah. And I think the other gap which you brought up is just technology. Most of the technology that's out there today was designed to capture billing information effectively. It wasn't designed to guide evidence-based care. So there is a, a giant technology gap relative to helping or surfacing exactly the right information at exactly the right time to guide a, a care provider, prescriber, or otherwise through the decision-making process. Exacerbated, and I would like to ask you about this, exacerbated by, you know, sometimes people call real-world data. Here's another name for it, noise. (laughs) You had mentioned earlier wearable information or patient-reported outcomes. And we've done a number of programs that use patient-reported outcomes. And generally speaking, the first reaction, especially of the physicians, is, yikes, you know, I already have so much I'm looking at. Why are you showing me this too? And it's a valid concern until I guess it's very either well understood or or some of these best practices are very well utilized across the industry so that everyone understands that they're not going to be given every single data point that all of a sudden they need to be an informaticist in their spare time (laughs) to try to understand. One of the first things I thought of when you mentioned that about a provider, perhaps saying, why are you showing me this when I already have so much information to look at and to sort of synthesize in my own mind? And I think one response to that could be, you're going to be having patients that are coming in demanding this information. So as we see the rise of the consumer in healthcare, you know, that that's one reason why providers are going to need to understand not only the efficacy of the product, which is determined by randomized controlled clinical trials, but also the effectiveness in patients that are just like, for example, me going to a doctor. I might not fit the criteria of a clinical trial patient. And so I'm going to want to know how does this product work in other patients that are similar to me. 
And I mean, that's the first thing. And then the second thing I would say to that is that, you know, now we're really improving the ways we can combine data and not just look at insurance claims or adjudicated claims that were meant for financial purposes, but we're now using de-identified data to look at real-world treatment patterns and outcomes. We need to be able to combine that with electronic medical health records, maybe inpatient data if that's not included in the database, patient reported outcomes, whether that's through surveys or whether that's through, it could be a number of different sources. We need the ability to combine if necessary and if appropriate, and then to communicate that in a way that is meaningful and helpful to healthcare organizations and potentially providers, although given the challenges that I mentioned earlier. And I think organizations that can do that and understand that different stakeholders need different information will be successful. Yeah, it definitely takes a village. So absolutely, collaboration is going to be, I actually just did a podcast with John Moore from Chillmark, and his whole point was collaboration is a core skill <laughs> in the current environment. Absolutely. I think if you're inside industry and biotech and you want to conduct or obtain real world data and synthesize it and conduct real world evidence research, you need to first ask around and understand what you don't know. You know, who else might be working with real world data? You know, there's some good places to start. There might be an epidemiology group. There might be a safety group, pharmacovigilance group. There could be even business intelligence. They're likely using real world data sources. Find out who's utilizing these types of data within your organization and see if there's the opportunity to collaborate, whether it's financially in terms of purchasing data sets or on research itself rather than trying to start out and go out on your own, because I think you're right, it takes a village and you need to understand who else is doing it and how you can not only potentially help that function, but how that function can perhaps help you in return. Yeah, and you raise also a, an important point there. It's not just collaboration across organizations. Sometimes if you're working in a large company, it's, it's actually collaborating with different departments inside, which is often tougher than it might seem on paper. Yeah, you know, there's always going to be, well, likely going to be some internal politics within industry. You have to make careful decisions here. One of the most important things early on is just to listen. Listen, you know, talk to your colleagues in different departments, understand what their needs are, rather than this is what we're talking about today, real world data and real world evidence. And some people really are not that familiar with it or how it could benefit their groups and possibly improve patient access. So rather than trying to go directly to them and sort of pushing information on them, saying this will help you, this will help you, first just listen. You know, what are the challenges that they have? And, you know, take that back. Take it back to your desk and think about it. And real world data might be an opportunity to help them answer those questions. It might not be, but it may very well be. And going back to them and showing them how you can support them with their current challenges they're not going to likely really, I don't want to say that they don't care where the information comes from, but some functions, you know, obviously if you're, you have to report back to the FDA or even payers, there are going to be certain steps that you need to follow. But if you just need insights for internal decision making, then, you know, you can demonstrate how you select the best data source to answer the question and how you can answer it. And insights can really be gleaned very quickly these days. 
I remember attending different conferences and there's there's always a, a really good slide out there that shows how fast insights can be gleaned today. Whereas in the past, you'd have to request it, go to an analyst, da, 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 da. We could go on and on. And, you know, maybe six weeks later, you'll get your answer. Now, with just the incredible amounts of technology advances that we've made in the last several years, one can have that answer in literally minutes. So there's efficiencies that have been created in how to obtain insights. And I think companies that embrace and understand this and the difference between insights and evidence, again, you know, they'll be very successful making decisions internally uh, that will eventually impact uh, patient access to medications in the future. So talk about Genesis Research. Who do you work with over there? Genesis Research, we specialize in evidence generation and synthesis, but we often work with pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies, but also healthcare organizations help them understand their data better. But especially now, there's so many startups and many of the startups have very few resources and really need help with understanding real world data and evidence. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Julie. Thank you so much, Stacey. It was really fun. I hope this informs the listeners that you have with Relentless Health and I hope you have a great day. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.